My name is Arthur Gonsalves, and I am the pastor of a little tiny church plant um, on, uh, in downtown Sanford called Restoration Church of Sanford. As a matter of fact, Central Church is our sending church. Um, they sent us off. They support us. And uh, we're so grateful for Pastor Ethan and Pastor Mike and everybody here. I'm just so grateful for them. And so I'm just so excited that I got an invite back. You know, you never know what's going to happen. You're like, I don't know if I bombed it last year or not, but Mike invited me back. Maybe he didn't have anybody else. I'm not sure, um, but I'm here. So, and I'm excited to unpack the Word of God with you tonight. So, in honor of God's Word, let us stand to our feet. I don't know if you have a Bible with you. If you do, turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 1. So let's stand up. And the reason we stand up is to honor God's word. This is God who's going to speak his word to us. Listen, I just want to say this. God's word is inspired. What what, what we're going to hear tonight is the very breath of the living God. We say that the Bible is inerrant, infallible. What that means is the Bible doesn't have any errors, any contradictions. There's not even possibility of contradiction and error. The Bible is authoritative. That means that there, it demands a response from us tonight. If it's God who's, if this is really God's word, then it demands a response. We also say that the Bible is sufficient. It's sufficient. It, it, anything we need in terms of salvation and to grow in Christ, the Bible can do that for us. And we also say that the Bible is effective. That means it does everything it's set out to do. And so this is the breath of God. Y'all hear this now. Starting at chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Let us pray before we have a seat. Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight and we are, in, we are just so encouraged 
And so bless those who have called on your name that we can call the creator and sustainer of everything. We can call him father. That's a privilege that Jesus, by his life, death, and resurrection, by his blood, made possible for those who call on his name. And so, Lord, tonight we need your word. There are so many who are here who are thirsty, who are empty, who are hopeless. Some have put on a face and are acting like everything is great, and it's not. We need you. We need you, Holy Spirit, to open up our eyes to see, to open up our ears to hear. So what we know not, Lord, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, by your Spirit, make us. Your word is truth. And so I simply pray tonight, sanctify us by your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. So the title of my sermon tonight is From Church Persecutor to Church Planter. From Church Persecutor to Church Planter. So uh, I've heard that Pastor Mike has been going through Acts since the start of camp. He started in Acts 4 talking about Peter and, and, and how Peter was bold to proclaim the gospel. Then in Acts 7, he talked about Stephen and his bold proclamation, living with a life that is significant for the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel. We learn in Acts 7, of course, that Stephen was killed for his faith. But it's during that account of Stephen that we're briefly introduced to this person, the main character of tonight, the Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus is the one who actually gave consent to that murderous act of Stephen. He's the one who stood by Saul of Tarsus and held the garments of those who murdered Stephen. That's the first introduction to the Saul of Tarsus that we get in Scripture and from that point on, he kind of passes from sight. He passes from interest. And then Luke goes on to, to talk about the ministry of Philip among the Samaritans and to the Ethiopian eunuch. But now Luke returns to his narrative of this man called Saul of Tarsus. And he begins chapter 9, very action-packed. He comes back to Paul, or what we'll call Saul for just a moment, and he says, then Saul, he's picking up where he left off. Then Saul, chapter 9, verse 1, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. The first thing I want you to notice is Paul, the persecutor here. Paul, the murderer. Scripture is painting a, a, a clear picture of who Paul is. Saul of Tarsus before the grace of God came upon Saul's life. Saul here is described as one who's breathing out fire. As some other translations render it, a, a dragon who goes around seeking whom he may devour. But more technically, if we examine the word here in the original language, the verb that is used for breathing, get this, doesn't refer to breathing out. It actually refers to breathing in. And this may sound strange to us that somebody can breathe in threats of murder and destruction. But here's the idea. The idea here is that Paul is so 
passionately determined to carry out his persecution against the newborn Christian community that he's kind of like a, a wild beast who snorts before he attacks. And you can kind of think of a bull in a bull ring, right? Kind of sticking his paws onto the earth and then snorting before he attacks you, right? So just for a second, I thought that this would be a, a good practice for us. I just want to try... Uh, all of us just trying to snort if we can, okay? On the count of three, I want you to give me the best, you gotta hold on now, the best snort you can possibly give me, all right? So on the count of three, one, two, three. All right, I, I think we could do better. Let's try it again, one, two, three. All right. That is absolutely gross. So gross. Okay, okay. We couldn't do that example or illustration during the pandemic, but now we can. So, what were you doing? Were you breathing out or were you breathing in when you did that? You were breathing in. You were breathing in. You're breathing in. So that's the image. Y'all get this picture now. That's the image that Luke is giving to us to describe the intensity of the fierce hostility that Saul is manifesting as he makes his way to Damascus. He is furious. He wants to go to Damascus to do one thing, to kill and persecute Christians. So before he leaves, he goes to the high priest, Paul. Saul of Tarsus is very strategic. He's a very smart guy. So he goes to the high priest and he seeks authorization to carry out his persecution that he's already started in Jerusalem, as we can see with Stephen. But now he goes to the northern regions of Israel up in Damascus, which, by the way, Damascus is one of the oldest cities in the history of the world. It was even known to Abraham in antiquity. So we know that in Damascus there was a large settlement of Jews how do we know that? Well, history tells us that during the reign of Nero, Nero killed roughly around 10,000 Jews who were assembled in Damascus. So, Saul, suspecting that some of those Jews who were, in the, who were in the community in Damascus had already been seduced by the proclamation of the Christians about this person named Jesus, he went and he got the necessary paperwork that he could carry out with him to Damascus so he can go into each synagogue where they were located and have the legal authority and justification from the high priest so he can bind these Christians, take them back to Jerusalem, kicking and screaming for one purpose. He wants to take them back to Jerusalem to do one thing. He wants to kill Christians. He wants to persecute them. That's what he's doing. That's the picture we have of Saul here in these first few verses. And I might add this, that this is only one of several accounts of the conversion of Saul that we find in the book of Acts. There are others as well. And there's a reason that there are multiple accounts of Paul's conversion. And one of the most serious questions that the early church faced was the question of the legitimacy of the apostleship of Paul because all the other apostles had been members of the original 12 disciples. 
They've all been eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And all of the other apostles had their authorization to being apostles. How? By the direct and immediate call of Jesus Christ. Now, this is completely in line with biblical history. In the Old Testament, for somebody to be a prophet... Uh, they, they didn't go to school and get their degree in prophecy. They didn't become ordained by the Jewish community to be a prophet. No, that's not how it worked. To be a prophet in Israel with a capital P, it required that you had to have a call directly from God. So that's why people like Jeremiah and Amos and Isaiah, they were all careful to give the circumstances of their call when God set them apart and made them prophets. And likewise... In the New Testament, to be qualified to be an apostle, one would have had to have been called directly by Jesus Christ. So, since Paul was not of the original 12 disciples, since Paul was not an eyewitness of the resurrection, the occurrence on the road to Damascus becomes of supreme importance to validating his authority in the early church and to validate the scriptures that we read today, that they are in fact God's word. So you can imagine now, if you get this, how much the first Christians trusted Paul when he comes back and assumes the role of leadership in the church. The guy who, who was persecuting Christians, his reputation preceded him. Well, let's get a picture of how this might have taken place. This is like somebody from Al-Qaeda coming on national TV and asking to be a, a model of patriotism for the United States of America. We would be like, yeah, right. So here we have Saul getting his chief creden credential, being called directly and immediately from Christ. So that call is repeated a couple of more times in the book. And as a matter of fact, it's said that Luke, one of, the, one of the reasons why he wrote the book of Acts was not simply to tell us of the marvelous activity of the Holy Spirit, not just to tell us about the early formation of the church, but also one of the main purposes that Luke wrote the book of Acts was to provide an apologia, an apology for the credentials of this man called Saul of Tarsus. This man was in fact directly called from God. Luke wants us to know that. God wants us to know that. God knew that he was going to write a lot of epistles in the New Testament. So he's, he's making sure that we know that his call was, in fact, from God, that he is a legitimate apostle, this Saul of Tarsus. But from now on, we're going to be referring to the Saul of Tarsus as Paul. So in any case, as Paul journeyed, he came near Damascus, and get this, suddenly a, a light shone around him from heaven. Let's just pause there for just a second, okay? He's almost to Damascus. He's just kind of traveling. He's on the Transjordan Road, which is just a, simply a desert road. And if we fill in the gaps with some of the other records in the book of Acts, we can say it's about noontime when the sun is at its apogee, when the sun is shining at its very brightest, that this light now appears from heaven that is so blazing, that is so bright, that it virtually obscures the light of the sun. Now, it's kind of hard for us to imagine how anything could be brighter than the sun itself, especially if we live in Florida. But the word that is used here, 
when it says that this light from heaven shone on Paul is the same word that is used in the Greek language to describe the light that comes with a bolt of lightning. Now, if you live in Florida, you know about lightning. I want you, now it's just a fun fact time, okay? You can use this for trivia. You're welcome. Did you know that Florida is the lightning capital of the world? Who knew that? Raise your hand if you knew that. All right, so I'm preaching to the choir. They say that more bolts of lightning strike central Florida each year than in the whole rest of the United States combined. Fact. So we know what lightning is like. Out in the dark night, all of a sudden, a, a bolt of, of lightning flash comes through. It's bright. You can hear the sound. Our lightning bolts, when the lightning strikes, is it, is it quiet or is it loud? It's loud, right? And this is exactly what happens here. And if you can imagine the brightness of that flash, when, when there's lightning, it only lasts for a second. But here, the intensity of a lightning flash is enduring for several moments. And, it, and it's clearly something that is of supernatural origin. So, of course, Paul is thrown to the ground. And immediately after this blinding, a refulgent light of, of the glory of God throws Paul to the ground. And then he hears these words. Oh, man, this is my favorite part. He hears these words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now I want you to see how God gets personal with Paul. Every call from God is personal. Whether it's a call to salvation or a call to ministry, friends, God's call in your life and for your salvation is personal. He cares about you. He knows you. And it's the same here with Paul. In the Bible, there are what many call the double knocks. And these double knocks happen 15 or so times in all of Scripture when someone is addressed by the repetition of their name. Can you guys think of any, any stories, any accounts in the Bible where, where that happens? Can anybody, can anybody remember any Bible trivia time? Okay. Jonah? Uh-uh. It's Okay. Good. Yes, absolutely. That's definitely one of them. I'm just gonna I'm gonna give you a few just to kind of refresh your memory. Let's go back to the days of Abraham. When Abraham goes to Mount Moriah with Isaac, some of you know the story. He raises the knife to plunge it into the chest of his son, and at the last possible moment, God calls to him, saying, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand upon your son, for now I know that you trust me. Genesis twenty two. Then the same message is given when Moses is called in the Midianite wilderness out of the burning bush. God speaks to him saying, Moses, Moses, put off your shoes from off your feet. We see it when God calls Samuel, when he's under the tutelage of, of Eli in the midnight. He calls Samuel, Samuel. We see it when David gives his lament of the news of the death of his son, the rebel Absalom. David beats his breast and he calls out, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. And when Elijah saw his tutor Elijah being carried into heaven, he cries out, my father, my father, the chariots of God. 
So throughout the Old Testament, all the way into the New Testament, we see God, Jesus, the God-man, speaking tenderly to Martha when he rebukes her. And he says what? Martha, Martha. Or when he weeps over Jerusalem, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Or as my friend said, even on the cross, right? Matthew 27. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the 15 or so times that we see this in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, it simply indicates a form of address that is intensely personal. Underscoring again the the warning that Jesus gave to his hearers. Some of us might know the scripture when he reached the climax of the Sermon on the Mount when he said many would come to him in the last days saying unto him what? Lord, Lord. And Jesus said, those who will cry to me saying, Lord, Lord, I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Here it is. I never, what? Knew you. But he's indicating that people will claim not only to know him by name, but by the repetition, Lord, Lord. They will claim to know him personally and intimately. And he will say, you never knew me. But what's so amazing to me as I was reading this over the course of the last couple weeks, what's amazing to me is that when in the sovereignty of God and the sovereignty of our Christ, Jesus decides to give this special grace of election, he decides to set his love on Paul despite or in spite of who Paul was. He chooses not Pilate. He chooses not Caiaphas, but he chooses the murderer. He chooses Saul of Tarsus. And he addresses him in these terms of personal intimacy. Guys, this should stagger our imagination tonight. Jesus could have could have had could could have to me it blows my mind that he could have any love whatsoever for this man really I know we read things in the Bible we're like yeah well that's Jesus he was persecuting people who were following him it's crazy to think that Jesus would have any love for Paul in light of his singular passion to destroy anything and everything that had to do with him to do with Christ and I have to stop here and say that that's exactly the kind of people God likes to save. God loves to save the unlikely to do unlikely things for his name. You see, there are two kinds of people. There are the people who are in here, I know for sure, who say, Pastor, there is no, there's no way God can save me. We say this all the time, but it's true. We think to ourselves, you don't know what I've done in the past. You don't even know what I'm doing right now. I, I want to remind you, Paul was on his way to go persecute the church, right? He was on his way. This wasn't just like past tense. It was present tense. He was on his way. And some of you are thinking, not me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I'm doing. And friend, God delights to save a person like you so that your testimony can be great to the glory of God's grace. So that's one person. So you have one person. And that's the person that thinks, no, not me. Uh, There's no way God could save me because of what I've done and what I'm doing. 
Then there's the other person, and this, this might seem a little obscure, but uh, there's the other person who is here tonight who um, keeps trying to fit in, keeps trying to do what everybody's doing, they almost feel like they can't be themselves. Maybe you come to church, you come to youth group, and you're just being somebody else. You're not being who God made you to be. And there are even things that you are turning down because you're just following the crowd. But friends, God not only d delights to call on those who think that, 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 that they can't save, can't be saved, God also likes to call those who, are, who, are, who stand out, who are a little bit quirky, who think that, no, not me. If, if, if everybody really knew who I was, there was no way I, I, that, that I could be used for ministry. God loves to use people like you. God he loves to use people who stand out so that they can stand out for him and his gospel. Let me just say this to you. If that's you, friends, if you're just keep trying to, to, to be somebody, you're not coming to youth group, and, and you just, God wants you to, God wants to break you out of that tonight. Let me just say this to you. Stop trying to fit in. That's probably what's holding you back. Because you think if people just know who I really am, then, no, God loves to use the quirky, weird people. Friends, your brokenness is the very weakness that God uses to display his gospel power to the world. Listen, when, when you are strong, Christ and his message is weak. But when you are weak, friend, Christ and his message is strong. Paul knew a lot about this. That's why he wrote to the church at Corinth. He wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, listen to these words in light of his call. Listen to what he says. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Somebody say, praise God. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to you wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, i.e., Jesus does it all for you. And he says, and the reason... God does it this way. The reason that God calls people like Saul of Tarsus and the oddballs and the misfits is for this last, for this reason in verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The very thing you're running away from or hiding, friends, that could be the very thing that unlocks your freedom and even unlocks your call from God stop I pray that tonight when we're done that you just come and say I'm done trying to fit in I'm trying to stand out so Paul hears his name in Hebrew called from heaven with a question Saul Saul he, what a question why are you persecuting me it's interesting you got to think about it, right? Jesus has already ascended to heaven. 
His persecution is complete. But now he says to Paul, why are you persecuting me? It's interesting, right? Why would he say that? I just want you to see it here. The reason that Jesus says this is because he so identifies with his church, he so identifies with his people that anyone who is in Christ Jesus, anyone who is persecuted for Christ's sake is one who is at the same time identifying with Jesus. Jesus is basically saying, if you persecute my people, you persecute me. So all the saints right now, all the Christians right now in closed countries in Sudan and China and so on who are, who are daily under attack and being killed at the hands of hostile and violent Christ-haters are being persecuted for Christ's sake. Those that are persecuting them are actually persecuting Jesus. And we can look at different places in the world and different places in church history where the attacks against the people of God were in fact an attack against Jesus. What's going on in our culture is an attack, not just on us, it's an attack on Jesus and his word. But we're not really here in America involved in that kind of persecution. But we can bring it down to a much smaller degree. Recently, I, I'm gonna, I promise you this is going to tie in. But recently I read that on any given Sunday morning, 75% of the people who belong to a congregation are in church, 75%. While an average of 25% are missing every week. And they may be missing because they're out of town. They may be missing because they're providentially hindered. They may be missing because they're too ill to be there. But that'll never explain the full 25%. And the reason is this. Some people come to church every Sunday, no matter what, they're going to be there. And some people come only once or, or twice a month or three times a month. But when it all averages out on any given Sunday, you can figure that 25% of the sheep are going to be missing, even though our Lord has said to us, don't ever, ever neglect the coming together of the saints. But why do we do that? Why do we miss coming to youth group? Why do we miss coming to church? Well, let's be real, because sometimes we'd rather be doing something else. We'd rather be playing video games with our friends. We'd rather be going to the beach. We'd rather sleep in on Sunday morning than be in the presence of God, bringing honor to Christ along with all the saints of history and all the saints around the world. I don't think there's, there's not one person in this room who hasn't done that one time or two, everybody has slept in sometime. And I, I have to be honest with you, even as a pastor, there are days I wake up and I don't want to go to church for various reasons. I want to sleep in. So this is interesting. I, I'll never forget a pastor mentioning a story about a vicar in a church in Australia that served with a bishop in, uh, of his area. Here's what he said. He said one morning um, they had this young vicar who came into the church and the young vicar, he he didn't shave that morning, so he, he looked like me. So I shaved right before I got here. So anyway, okay, that's my joke. I'm Portuguese. So, so the bishop looked at him and said, hey, man, are you fixed for blades? He says, what do you mean, the young vicar asks. And the bishop proceeded to ask, did you forget to shave this morning? And the vicar said, oh, oh, oh no, sir. He says, the spirit didn't lead me to shave this morning. 
And he says, every morning I get up and I wait for the leading of the Spirit and the Spirit leads me to shave. And so I shave. And if the Spirit doesn't lead me to shave, I don't shave. And this morning, the Spirit didn't lead me to shave. So the elderly bishop said, son, let me give you some advice. Why don't you, from this day forward, as a matter of principle, clean your face before you go to work? And make it a matter of principle and a matter of discipline and quit bothering the Holy Spirit to determine the insignificant details of your life. Now, what's the application for that? I promise you it ties in. The application is this. Don't wait for the Spirit to lead you to church and youth group. Make it a matter of principle to be here at church. Say from now on, and do it today, resolve this on in your heart, and say from now on, I'm going to stand with my Lord. I'm going to be present for his sake. I'm going to honor him whenever I can, can possibly get together with Christians. I'm going to do it. Here's why I say that. Because if you really want to be used by God to spread the gospel in your school, to your family, and to your friends, it starts by showing up to church. If you can't show up to church or youth group faithfully, how do you think you will share the gospel faithfully? This is the training ground. This is where we get equipped and encouraged. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, I'm not very bold with the gospel. Maybe you haven't been to church in a while. That's where the Lord emboldens us, strengthens us, encourages us to share the gospel. So now Paul hears these words. And he hears this question, why are you persecuting me? And now he knows that whoever is addressing him out of this blinding light and this sound that he's hearing, this ain't no average person coming from Damascus. He knows that he's in touch with a supernatural someone. But he's not quite sure of that identity. And so he asks the question, who are you, Lord? I don't know who you are, but I know whoever you are, you're Lord. So Paul's Obviously here, not using the term kairos in the lower sense or the simple, polite address kind of way. He's using kairos in the supreme and imperial sense. He knows that he's being addressed now by the sovereign one of heaven, but he doesn't know what's going on. And so he says, who are you, Lord? And the answer comes to him. You ready? The response is this. I'm Jesus. That's the name that Saul hated more than any other name in the world. I'm Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, this might not be in your Bible in the ESV, but in the New King James Version, and in the King James Version, it goes on to say in verse 5, isn't it hard for you to kick against the goads? Anybody scratching their head as to what in the world does that mean? Well, that might be obscure, uh, an obscure reference for many of us and might not be meaningful for us, but in history, much of produce was hauled on ox carts. And sometimes the oxen, just like the mules, can get very stubborn. They would have to whip these mules a little bit to get them moving. And sometimes they would just make the oxen all the more stubborn. They would kick against the ox cart and they could shatter the ox cart. So they mounted these goads or spikes in the front of the cart so that, if, so that if you switched the ox and the ox kicked against the goad or the spikes, the spikes would get him moving. 
But sometimes the ox would be so stubborn and so angry that when he would kick against the goat and the goat would pierce his foot, it would cause him more pain and he would get more angry and he would kick it again. Just like the person that goes and kind of bangs their head on the wall and says, why did you do that? Because it feels good. So what Jesus is doing here by saying this in the, in the King James Version, in, in, in the New King James Version, what Jesus is saying here, what he is doing here is this. He's saying, Saul, do you have any idea how stupid you are? Paul, you're a stupid ox. You're like the ox who kicks against the ox goad when you carry on your hostility towards me. It's not just sinful, friends, to resist the lordship of Christ. It's stupid. It's stupid. Why? Because God has raised Jesus from the grave. He has placed Jesus at the right hand of God. He has given Jesus all authority on heaven and on earth. And he's called every person to bow their knee before him and to resist. Jesus is plain foolish. He said, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. It's going to happen. So now Paul, trembling and astonished, he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? The question is really not in the scriptures, but the implications are and can be understood here by Jesus' response to Paul in verse 6. What do you want me to do, Jesus? Let me say, let me just ask this question. Is there any other response that you can have when you... When Jesus saves you, other than, Lord, what do you want me to do? Can you remember the day you got saved? The day that Jesus forgave you of your sins and gave you eternal life? Do you remember that day? I do. And I remember my response. It was much like Isaiah. Here am I, Lord. Send me. What do you want me to do? And that's exactly what Paul did. That's exactly what he asks. And now all of a sudden, the agenda changes dramatically. And now we're going to see Paul no longer as a persecutor. But now we're going to see the call on Paul's life to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth by planting churches. Paul, just like all of us before we came to Christ, we had our own agendas. Paul had his agenda, and that was to kill Christians. But now the agenda has changed and it started with the question, what do you want me to do, Lord? And the Lord said, here's what I want you to do. Arise and go into the city and there you will be told what you must do. Now get this, try to picture what's going on here. The men who were journeying with him, they must have stood speechless. They heard a voice, but they saw no one. And listen to this, then Saul arose from the ground. And all this time, Saul kept his eyes closed tightly. He didn't even dare to open up his eyes in light of the brilliance of that light that had come upon him from heaven. But now, as things abate, he gets up and he chances it and he opens up his eyes. But he doesn't see the bright light. Actually, all he sees is darkness. Paul lost his vision. He's completely blind from the light from heaven. And when his eyes were open, he saw no one. And so they had to lead him by the hand 
and bring him into Damascus. I can't help but wonder whether that Christian community in Damascus had their spies and whether the word had already spread throughout Damascus. Hey, this fire-breathing guy, Saul, is on his way. He's just a, a little bit outside of the city. And the sense of terror and, and fear grips the citizen Christians of Damascus. And they look up and they see this man being led by the hand. He was as blind as a bat being led into the city. And this man who was an absolute threat to them is no longer a threat. They led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And he was there for three days without sight. Neither did he eat nor drink. Three days in darkness, in hunger, and in thirst. Three days for Saul of Tarsus to contemplate what had happened to him on the road to Damascus. He had three days to think about what took place. Listen, guys, you have five days. Seriously. Camp is so important. You know why? Because God can do some incredible things because of this camp. He can open up your eyes to see who you really are and your need for a Savior. He, he, can, he can call you into ministry here to be a missionary, a church planner. So don't let this moment kind of pass by. Let this be your time with the Lord. Don't, don't let, I know it's fun. I know you guys are having fun together, but tonight maybe you just kind of get away for a second maybe with a leader and you talk to somebody and begin to unpack some of the things that you're feeling in your heart maybe because of some of the messages from pastor mike or whatever it may be with a conversation maybe it's from a conversation with your leader ponder on these things that you're learning talk with somebody the conviction that you're sensing from the holy spirit talk to somebody about it don't let these five days go by without talking to someone about what God is doing in your heart. So you see, friends, Saul's life was turned upside down in the moment on the road to Damascus. And the reason that was was so that he would turn the world upside down for the advancement of the gospel to the ends of the earth for the glory of God. I just want you to know that God is still in the business of turning people's life around. He wants to turn someone's life in here upside down to continue the mission of God of bringing our testimonies of God's wonder-working power of grace and to bring the good news of Jesus Christ that he has the power to save anyone, anywhere, anytime. And God wants to use you to bring that message to your family, to your friends, to your school, and maybe, just maybe, God wants to call you into some kind of ministry. Verse 15 and 16 is really the reality for every person here in the room. It says, but the Lord said to Ananias, you ready? Go, go, go. You'll always see that, that action call from God. Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Listen, friends, have you ever thought about what you're going to do with your life? Let me just say this. Don't waste your life on trivial things. Don't think you're too, used, you're too young to be used by God 
Resolve in your heart tonight. Resolve in your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, please resolve in my heart the call on my life. Resolve it tonight. Maybe God's calling you to be a missionary, to go to the ends of the earth where, where the gospel is not, where there's no gospel and there's no churches. God wants to use you. He can do that. He can call you tonight. And maybe God wants you to, to be in leadership in ministry. Go to Mike and say, I want to be used. I don't know how, but I sense the call of my life. Maybe God is calling you to be a pastor and you're like, I don't know, but I, I just could see myself preaching. I love to teach God's word. Maybe that's your call. Answer the call. Don't waste your life. Why? Why do we need to answer the call? It's so much bigger than us. We're part of something so much bigger. And the reason tonight why it's so crucial that we need to answer the call of God in our life is because 55.3 million people die each year. 151,600 people die each day. 6,316 people die each hour and 105 people die each minute and go to hell without hope and eternal life. This is so much bigger, so much bigger than us. You see, friends, those who don't know Jesus tonight, first and foremost, your first step is to go to Christ and repent of your sins and trust on him by his grace. He can save you tonight. Trust in his life. Trust in his death. Call him Lord. He will save you. It's what the Bible says. But listen, God doesn't only want to save you. Hear me. He doesn't only want to save you. He wants to call you into ministry to be used for God, to be used for his glory. Don't just end with, I'm okay with just being saved. No, no, no. Go. Go. But I don't want to hype you up. I don't want you to think it's going to be all roses and the call of God is just, just all fun and, and games. It's not. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be crosses. There's going to be pain. You're going to lose friends. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be persecution. And on those days when you're pursuing your call, the call of God on your life, to make him known, remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 when he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Romans 18 puts it this way. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So tonight, Jesus' call to each individual in this room is a call to come and die with Christ by repenting of yourself and your sin and trusting in Christ as your Lord. Come and find forgiveness for your sins. Come and find security in Christ that you too can have eternal life tonight. Romans 6 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So yes, it's a call to come and die, but it's also a call to come and live. Ephesians 2 says, for we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's so interesting to me that Ephesians 2 all the way to 9 is all about salvation and then he closes, he caps that whole section by saying, hey guys, I have works for you to do. Yeah, you're saved, praise God. I have works for you to do to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. So Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, Pastor Arthur, how do I live by faith? You live by faith in the new mission of your life. And the new mission of your life, how you live by faith in the Christian life, is simply this way. You ready? It's simple. It's called the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded with you. And just in case you're worried, just in case you're scared to answer God's call on your life, he says, hey, I'm going to be 